raises um, well the two two issues really one is the question of what the work is that one should be doing you know what what should be the focus the personal consciousness as you enter this time and the second is the uh, the Torah of this time in other words <coughs> what is the <coughs> the theme what is the underlying spiritual pattern, if you like, the energy of this time of year that we can uh, that we can identify in order to to learn from. So you know that uh, we've studied together many times the fact that in in learning about the deeper areas of, of Torah thinking, or what you might call the, the non-halachic areas perhaps, although obviously that's an artificial division, there are some keys or codes, if you like, or themes, tools that we use in order to access this wisdom. Just like in the halachic area, we have certain principles that we always use, and just like in any science or wisdom, there are, there are tools, the axioms, if you like, the underlying principles that are always the ones that that give rise to the details or the specific observations or applications. So in this area of Torah also there are such themes. And of course to understand Torah correctly, to understand especially these areas of Torah, if you're not in control, if you haven't mastered the the axioms, the, 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 the underlying the principles if you like, the um, the laws, as it were, in science we call them perhaps the laws, the natural laws, then the observing and studying the peripheral details is really not, it's not really a wisdom. <coughs> now, <coughs> of all the themes that are, all the tools, if you like, that are essential for studying this area, there's one that Rosh Hashanah brings out, which is perhaps the most fundamental, one of the most fundamental themes. And that is the theme of how all processes unfold from their moment of conception, or moment of birth. There's a beginning that contains what comes later, and what comes later is a loyal development, or a, an authentic and loyal revelation of what was there in the first moment. <clears throat> Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of the year, and therefore, in a sense, it contains the rest of the year. The reason that it's a day of judgment is because on this day, the way you look, that means the, the judgment of Rosh Hashanah is 
that you get assessed, you get judged. The judgment means a self-assessment. It means there's a focus, a spiritual clarification that takes place on this day. And according to that, the rest of the year follows. What you get through the rest of the year depends on how you look on this day. That needs understanding in what, ex- in what dimension exactly and how... Let's see if we can try and put our finger on this specifically. If it's true, we'll need to study this principle and then see its application and how Rosh Hashanah brings it home. If it's true, of course, then we should be able to see it in all the details, right? You look at the, mis- the, the aspects of Rosh Hashanah that, <coughs> that are manifest, the blowing of the shofar, the fact that it's the first day of the year, the mitzvah of tshuva, which we do at this time of year, even if not necessarily on Rosh Hashanah itself, but also that needs explanation. The things we say on Rosh Hashanah, the, the, the tefillah comprises what we call Malthus, Zichronus, and Shofaris, right? Three, three things that we're aware of. Kingship, Hashem's rule, as it were. Zichronus, which is some system of memory that needs understanding. And the Shofar, we talk about it and we blow Shofar. This year we won't, because being on Shabbos the first day, it's the first day we don't. It also needs explanation. <laughs> How are all these things, how are all of these things linked? What is the underlying theme that if one grasps that theme, then you've grasped all the details? And that's, again, that's the wisdom in science. You don't, in a science, you don't hope to understand the details. You don't want that. You want to understand the law that explains the details. That's wisdom. Observing the details doesn't leave you any wiser. So, first of all, Let's try, to, let's try to speak out what that pattern is, and then let's try to apply it to these various dimensions of Rosh Hashanah, see if we can pull together a unified vision of what this, what this thing is. The, the concept is that in any process, the process is not... There's not, a, there's not a sameness that is protracted throughout a process. <coughs> the way a process works in Torah is that there's an unfolding. Right? The first moment is a moment of potency. The first moment is a moment that contains the rest. But after that moment, or that infinitesimal, or inf- yeah, that, 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 that moment that is not a moment, that, that moment before time begins, if, if, you, if you like, in there is contained the whole future, the destiny of what will be. What happens in the second moment is only a gilui, or we call a revelation of what was there in the first. And what the second contains is the rest of the process. And what the third moment is, is only what the second gave birth to, but contains the rest of the process, until finally the last moment contains nothing but itself. Nothing of its own at all. All these things have names in the deeper wisdom, these, these particular parts of the process all have names, we recognize concepts, but that's the idea. Why is it this way? We always ask why. We want to understand deeply, why is it this way? Because the world unfolds from an infinite source, <coughs> which contains everything. The world unfolds in space and time from the ultimate source, which is Hashem. And therefore, in that, in His being, as it were, is the totality of the world. That, that is where space will manifest, and therefore anything that manifests in space will be derived from that essence, and anything that manifests in time will come from there. (coughs) Everything that is in the world is nothing other than an exposition, a gilu, a revelation of what was there in that oneness that we cannot grasp. How do we see it in space? Let's, Let's look at this. Let's try and get this pattern clear. We need to approach it 
this is a wisdom that the only way you can really grasp it is by approaching it from many different angles until the idea... Be- you can't say the thing itself. We're talking about things that are before words, beyond words. Therefore, there are no words by definition for the thing. All you can do is, you can, you can move around it enough until you fall in. Right? Then, then it's obvious. Let's try and follow it through on a few dimensions. You know, how do we understand that all space in the broadest possible sense, is derived from that infinite essence. One way you see a beautiful, many beautiful illustrations, one beautiful illustration is that one of the names we give to Hashem, one of the names that we use to denote Him is Hamakim, the place. Lest you think that He <coughs> exists within space, so we, we give Him the name Hamakim, which means that He is the place of place. Space exists in Him. That he, and that's why we call him Hamakim, the place. Right? We use that word in interesting occasions. One is in comforting mourners. Right? A mourner who thinks that a person who, with whom he was close, he or she, is now no longer in the same place, space, as he occupies. So we use this unusual word. We say, Hamakim Yenachem Eskim. May Hashem comfort you. May God comfort you. May Hashem comfort you. And we say, but how do we introduce? We say, Hamakam Yunachem, may the place, may the place of the world comfort you. What does that mean? One of the ideas here is that in a broader sense, you do still occupy the same space. I mean, lest you think that that neshama, that soul, is gone entirely to an unfathomable, unreachable place. There's a bigger place than this and that. Actually, the deep sources indicate that the word Makam. Adds up to 186, which is very interestingly the same number as the divine name for the letters multiplied by themselves. There's an interesting form of gematria in Hebrew. We discussed the idea before here that gematria, the numerical equivalence of the letters and the methodologies of using those, are. Let's try and put it into the terms we're using this evening. What's the wrong idea? People think gematria is some sort of numerology, playing with numbers and number games, word games, <coughs> finding equivalences. <coughs> gematria is to Torah what scientific notation is to English. Gematria is to the verbal sequence of Torah description what scientific mathematical notation is to a verbal description. <coughs> the Torah describes the word, the Torah describes the word, the world, in verbal terms. You can read the text and it describes the world. But instead of reading the text, if you, super, if, you, if you transpose those letters for numbers, right, according to the various systems of gematria, the Torah then turns out not to be a verbal document, but a mathematical document, which more accurately describes the world. Just like in, yes, it would be a scientist would not describe a physical phenomenon in verbal terms. You're right, gematria? A scientist would describe the, the world or an object, a phenomenon in scientific notation. It's much more specific. The world is contained. The world is contained in the Torah. And the Torah, as it were, is contained. In these, in these ideas, the form of gematria that involves taking a, a word and multiplying its numbers by themselves, each number by itself, the yud times yud, the hey times hey, the bab, etc. The meaning of that gematria is as follows. A word in Hebrew, when you take its numerical equivalent, that number is what the word is. 
But instead of taking the equivalent, you multiply each, each element by itself, you are looking at what it does when it expresses itself. Right? Are you with me? There are seven basic elements to the world. But between Pesach and Shavuos, we count 49 days. What are we saying? That the full extent of reality is not only the seven elements, but the fact that each of the seven has seven elements. Otherwise, you haven't described reality fully. Each contains seven, or each relates to all of the others as well as itself. And therefore, the full expression is really 49. Of course, once you've said that, you might as well say 49 times 7. But you have said that. Once you've indicated that, 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 that the elements are true to themselves, you've set that process in motion. So when you want to know what a thing is in essence, you take, its, you take the number. But when you want to know what the thing is not in essence, but what it produces when it operates, then you multiply the elements by themselves. Hashem's name, Yudkei Mavkei, if, which is the divine name that transcends the world, that we cannot grasp its, its essence, if you multiply the letters by themselves, you get the word Hamakai, the place. Meaning, His essence is what it is. But when it does what it, yeah, what it intends to do, it then manifests as the place of the world. Of course, we don't mean physical place. That's, we mean much more than that. We mean the possibility of existence. Right? Before anything... The deep sources say that just like before any object can exist, there must be a place for it. So too, before anything can exist, there must be the possibility of its existence. And Hashem is that possibility. All place uh, emanates from that essence. And all time emanates from that essence. Where do we see this? You know, there's a, there's a, um, there's a well-known technique that you find <coughs> many places that we are saying that the whole, for example, we say it's well known that the whole Torah, you know, Torah begins with the word Bereshit, right? In the beginning, Bereshit. You know, six letters. <coughs> there are many sources that indicate that you can find the whole Torah in that one single word. Right? You can find the whole Torah in that word. And there are many permutations of those letters and versions and, and all sorts of Torah writing that indicates that how you can find the rest of the Torah in those six letters. The God of Yonah who used to say that, they say he was once sitting at a Pidyon Aben. You know the mitzvah of the redemption of the firstborn? Pidyon Aben. So one of the Talmudim, one of the students, turned to the Gon and said, Rabbi, you told us that the whole Torah is contained in the word Bereshit. Right? Where do we see Pidyon Aben? Where do we see the mitzvah of redemption of the firstborn? Where do we see it in that word? So the Gon said, Ben, Rishon, Achash, Loshim, Yom, Tifde. Right? Those are the six letters of the word Bereshit. It spells it out. Right? And the Gon could do that with every mitzvah in the Torah, show you where the first word has it. But it's not a game or cleverness. The concept is that if it, if, it, if it is, it must have been there in the moment of the beginning. Whatever child has must have been laid down when the genes coalesced. If the child has blue eyes, yeah, at the first moment that was coded for, when the eyes arrived as blue, it's only a revelation of what was already there in destiny. That's the importance of beginnings. That's the importance of beginnings. Endings are important too. But the importance of a beginning is that it conditions, it, it, it presages, it, it, it builds the process. It sets the limits. And therefore the whole Torah is contained in the word brashes. Why does it begin with a base, for example? The second letter? Because here you're talking about the world in space and time. Right? You're talking about the creation of the world. So the first letter is the word, is the letter of two. Not one. One is the spiritual letter. The Aleph is the spiritual letter. That, becomes, that comes before the world. We've discussed many times that idea. That an Aleph is silent because it's not yet in the world. Aleph in Hebrew means elevated, right? Aluf, Aleph, etc. 
The Aleph is two Yuds and a Vav. The Aleph is the spiritual letter. It's the Yud, the ten mystical dimensions facing down from the higher world. The ten mystical dimensions as they're reflected in this world. With the Vav, which is the letter of junction in Hebrew. Vav means in Hebrew, and. Right? The Hebrew word Vav means a hook. <coughs> so the Aleph is two Yuds and a Vav. And what's two Yuds and a Vav? Twenty-six. The number of the divine name. Yud Kei Vav It's all there in the Aleph. But the world begins with a bet, not with an aleph, because you're talking about space and time. You're not talking about the spiritual world, you're talking about the finite world. That's already differentiated, broken down into multiplicity. It begins with a bet. But the Ten Commandments begin with an aleph. When you look at the world in its chronological, geographical dimension, then you start with a bet. When you look at the world in its spiritual dimension, then the whole Torah is not contained in the first word, it's contained in the Ten Commandments. And the Ten are contained in the first one, obviously, which is Anuchi Hashem Elokecha, I am Hashem, which is the point of beginning. And the first, all of that is contained in the first word, Anoichi, I. And all of that is contained in the Aleph. Again, it's not, this technique is deep. This means that you always go back to the point of conception. And there you'll find everything. If you know how to look there, it's very compressed. It's very compressed there. You may do well to wait until it comes out later so you can see visibly what was there. But if you know how, you can get it out of the first moment. For those who know any Hebrew, you know the first word of the, of the Ten Commandments is an Anochi. Anochi. There's a difference in Hebrew between Ani and Anochi. You know that? People don't know that. People think that, you know, Ani is modern and Anochi is classical. You know, it's old-fashioned Hebrew. The Torah contains Ani and Anochi. You have to know that. And there's a big difference. You know, Hebrew is specific, scientific, exact. The word Ani means I, but it means I in relationship to you. Anochi means I in and of myself. I in essence. And therefore the Torah begins with the word Anochi, which is him in his essence. Actually, the, the later sources say that the word Anochi also spells, it's an acronym for Ananafshi Ksibasivas. I have written myself and given that to you. The Torah is a written version of what I am and presented to you. Even that's contained there. But what have, we, what have we learned so far? Let's, let's take stock. What we've said is that every process... Yes, Rosh Hashanah, we, we're delving a little bit yes, to the beginning here. Can we do that? Do you have your energy for this? You need to be entertained? <laughs> no, good. <laughs> you want to delve beneath the surface, uh, it takes thought. So... The whole of a process is contained in its moment of beginning, of firstness. That's where the root is laid down, or the genes fuse, if you like. And it's not the case that you can cut the process anywhere and you see the same potency. It's not like that. The earlier you go, the closer you can push yourself back to the beginning, the more of a totality you see, and the more critical it is. Now, the example in the physical sciences, maybe in, in, in the world of medicine, for example, is that nobody serious about understanding the body would ever attempt to understand the body without going back to the embryology. Unless you understand what happened in pregnancy and how those structures unfolded and manifested, you haven't fully understood what you're looking at. And nobody would undertake a serious study of embryology these days without going back to genetics. Because un unless you understood how the genes operate, then you really haven't understood what you're seeing. You push back as far as you can. And the further back you go, the more critical it is. If you take a person to make a scratch, you can make quite a large scratch without too much damage. 
But if you take an embryo that's developing and you make a scratch, it may have enormous consequences. And if you take an embryo at the stage where the genes are swimming into focus, at that moment the most infinitesimally small adjustment, just a molecule, could have far more far-reaching consequences than a big injury later. That's the way it is. Because when you get back to the beginning, you're approaching infinity. You're approaching the infinite source that contains everything. Even in the physical world, let alone in the, the source of the world. And therefore, that's Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is that the year, the genes, the, the, the beginning of the pregnancy, as it were, the conception now, of yourself in the year. That's what's being laid down now. <coughs> you know, the word Shana in Hebrew, the word Shana means repetition and old. Shana in Hebrew, a year, means second. It means repeated or second. That which is... And the word Chodesh in Hebrew means Chadash. A month in Hebrew. It's an amazing thing. That's why we count by the moon, not by the sun. The sun is a year cycle. right? And that is, that is, that is old. That is... Shana means... It's already a second time. And a second and again and again. But Chodesh, the month, the new moon, that's the Jewish, that's the Jewish woman. The woman of the Jewish people. Which is the moon. That is already called Chodesh. Chodesh is Chadash. Rosh Hashanah is where the one and the other, yes, the, the, Rosh Hashanah, where the year begins, is, is, is a new month, yes, where the whole year has its conception. I mean, the practical side, obviously, is, is working on yourself to look like something on Rosh Hashanah. The, 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 the masters of previous generations would not sleep on that day. At least not the first half of the day, when the judgment is taking place, as it were. Because the, the year is being laid down now. You, want, you don't want to found your year and lay it down in unconsciousness. You want, this is where you look perfect. Yeah? This is where you set the limits. You, this is where you get given what you need for the rest of the year. You get given what you need in terms of what you show you're capable of using. No father withholds from his child the tools that the child could well use. No father will give his child tools that are too powerful, that the child will harm himself with. not going to do that. As much as the child demonstrates that he can use the tools, we give him the tools. What parent would withhold any tool from a child who's capable of using it? You give everything he can. But the child calls it down. I mean, first there's an assessment of what, what can be maturely used. That's the day of Rosh Hashanah. You get looked at in Rosh Hashanah as you look in the next world, and then you get given in this world what you need according to what you look like there. You can make changes later. You can never make changes, but that's brutal surgery. You can make changes to the child later, yes, and especially when the child... But that's brutal. If blue eyes are coded for in the beginning, you want to change that later, that's, that's major trauma. The way you adjust yourself in Rosh Hashanah, that's, that's the elegant way to do it. It goes further than this, really, because... Where's the conception of a child? Let, let's try and understand this. When a physical process, let's go a little deeper. When a physical process begins, where does it begin? In the mother. It begins in the woman. That's why the Torah begins with a base. Base in Hebrew means bait, the home. In the Talmud, a woman is called a home. The sages of the Talmud, they would call their wives their homes. Many, many layers to this idea, but it's also the letter of bracha. Bet is the letter of bracha, right? which here is in a woman. It's for that reason that the pregnancy is carried inwardly. The Talmud says that only things that are hidden hold bracha. Things that cannot be seen by the eye, they can expand. So what happens is this. When a child is conceived, the genes fuse, 
at which moment the destiny of what... When those, two, when those two components fuse, what's being laid down now is the totality of the process. It just takes time until it's revealed, that's all. But really, if you think about it, it began with a man. Although it's not visible here. All that comes from the Father is half a genetic code. That's all. Right? It's, it's a hold over. When you hold a newborn child in your hands, the entirety of the child is formed by the mother. There's nothing there from the father. Nothing at all from the father. The only thing that was there once was half of a genetic code. That's all. There's nothing of that materially left in the child. The totality of the child has been built by the mother. But the process began someplace else behind this, around the corner, in another dimension that can't be seen in the process. And that's called the male. That's called Zachar. The word Zachar in Hebrew, which means a male, also means memory. Zichronos, you see, on Rosh Hashanah we're doing memory. You know what we're trying to do? We're trying to remember so far back that we go beyond where the process began. Memory means, zikaron doesn't only mean remember, you know, what, what, what exactly do we remember on Rosh Hashanah? Zichronos. We remember the giving of the Torah, the creation of the world. What do you mean you remember those things? It means Jewish consciousness is here delving so deep that we're going back not only to the pregnancy, the embryology of this child. We're not only going back to the conception. We're going further back than that that cannot be seen from here. The connection between zikaron, memory, zecher, a memory, and zachar, the male. Can you see that? The process of formation begins with the conception, but that's all in the female. The only way you can get back to the real point of origin, we always refer to Hashem as male. <coughs> we always refer to Hashem, to God, as male. Because maleness means the multipotential source of origin. And femaleness means the mechanism that gives it life. The word nekeva in Hebrew, the word nekeva, which means a female, literally means to give fixed, finite shape to a thing. Like ya- Yaakov said to Lavan, Nakva alay ve'etena. Fix your wages and I'll pay you. Give me a figure. Give me a figure. Once you quote a figure, I can pay you. Giving a thing a tangible, finite limitation, that's the female quality. Bring it into reality. While it's theoretical, it's nice, and it's unlimited, that's its brocha, because it could be any figure. Imagine a man says, do you quote a figure, I'll pay you. Well, there's a dilemma there. There's a dilemma, because as long as you haven't said it, it could always be more. That's maleness. But you won't get paid. Without a woman to bring it into reality, it won't happen. Males usually don't mind. They'd rather live in the fantasy. That's a problem. Men, so immature, you're so childish usually. They'd rather live in the fantasy of all the potentiality and never bring it down. Because when you bring it down, just this. Get married, you have just one. (laughs) That's how the Western male is taught to think. But the word nekeva means to give a finite... So that's that's it. When you quote a figure... So two things happen. One is it's frozen. You said your figure now. But now you get paid. <laughs> That's why the word for nukeva in Hebrew means a curse also. Because curse in Hebrew doesn't mean something that disintegrates or... Curse means a thing that is frozen solid, cannot expand. That's the talent and beauty of the woman to give it reality, and that's the danger. And the talent and beauty of the male is to give the multipotential infinite energy. And the danger of the males may never happen. Zachar, Zikaron, Zikrenus and Rosh Hashanah, we are doing this because 
Rosh Hashanah is the day when we go beyond the beginning. We go prior to the moment of beginning. That's how deep we delve in. You know the word, the word Zachar, which is male. What is the male? The male is only the memory of what the past was. Again, the woman builds the child. The Zachar, the male, is only the memory of what his parents were. You know the Hebrew word Zikaron, which is a memory, is numerically equivalent to the word Zerah, meaning a seed. Spelled Zikaron without the Vav, that adds up numerically to Zerah seed. What is a seed? If you take an acorn and you cut it open, you don't see a small oak tree. What you see in the side of an acorn is just a white, just a seed. All you're holding in your hand is a memory of all the previous generations of trees and the knowledge of how to keep that going. It's all a seed is. <coughs> and that's Zikronus. Rosh Hashanah. The time when we go back to the beginning and we delve beyond that. After all, we're looking for the beginning of the world and then we want to go beyond that. We're not interested in the beginning of the world. We want to know where it came from. Which you can't see from here. But that's what a Jewish consciousness is. We're looking to see around corners. We want to go back before the beginning. You can go back to the base, which is the beginning of Rashi's, but we don't want that. We want the Aleph of Anaychi. That's where we want to go. And that's silence. That doesn't speak in the world. Not visible from here. That's what Zichronus is. Let's go a little bit further. What's the mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah, the shofar? We blow a shofar. So the unskilled, the unschooled ear, shofar, what, what does it have to do with anything? It's a sound, it's a mitzvah. What's the connection? Let's understand this deeply. Let's, look, let's apply our usual tools, study the idea, let's look at the word. What is the shofar? What is the shofar? And incidentally, why don't we blow it on Shabbos? Needs explanation too. The shofar is some of the elements of this idea we've discussed before, but let's try and just pull together the threads that we need for this, this application. The shofar is the root of sound. You see, when you express yourself, speech, speech is a mechanism that starts... The root of speech is the voice. Actually, there's a deeper root, but a silent root. That's the breath. The breath that begins where the heart and lungs are, the essence of the person, that's called, that's called neshima. Neshima in Hebrew, the breath, and neshama, the soul, are virtually the same word. But that's completely silent. Expression, be, or that, that drives expression. It's from the essence of the person. But the beginning of expression itself, that can be, that can be heard, anything that manifests as speech, that begins with a voice. And the voice is formed here. After the voice, it's moved into the mouth, and then it starts to get packaged into words. But the root of that communication is the voice itself. When you listen to someone speaking, you hear two things. You hear the voice, and you hear the words. And the truth is, the voice speaks more truly than the words. The words, even if the words are true, they're inadequate. The words are inadequate. The words are always packaged bits and pieces that can never, words can never say the thing. At best, the words can mislead less. The words can, you can talk about the thing. But you can't say the thing itself. The only hope you have is the voice. The words, you see, when words come down into the fixed dimension, the world that already constrains them into little packages, and what you wish to convey with those little packages is the way you understand what it is you say, which is far larger than any package could hold. How can the words say that? You know when people really communicate? When they don't have to speak at all. Then there's a chance of communication. 
But if you have to explain yourself, you might as well, and if you have to explain yourself in a lot of words, you might as well forget it, because you'd definitely be misunderstood. Definitely. You know, the, it's a wonderful idea in its own right. The Maharal says, so many illustrations of this, the Maharal says that, you know, Moshe, Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, could not speak properly. You know that he had, he could not speak properly. There are many dimensions to this. The Maharal says the reason he couldn't speak properly was because he was holding in a world where things are as they are in reality, and those can't be brought down into words. His inability to speak was his perfection. You think he had a defect? In a simple sense? Moshe Rabbeinu's perfection lay in the fact that he held in a world where things are grasped the way they are, with all the infinite expansion. So to bring them down into this many words, even if the words are accurate, is by definition a constraint. It's, it's He couldn't speak. Until later. So needs an explanation in its own right. You know, Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu, the one, Moshe, the one who could not speak properly, in the Kabbalistic writings, this part of the body is called Moshe. In the deep writings, this part of the body, the voice is formed, that's called Moshe. Each part of the body is named according to certain Kabbalistic depths. This is called Moshe. Moshe. The front of the throat. You know, it says, Shechina medaberes mitoich Moshe. The Shechina, Hashem's presence, speaks through the throat of Moshe. Not his mouth, his throat. Now, I think I've pointed out before, I think we've studied, shared together the idea that, you know, the front of the neck, the neck's function is the joining of the head to the body. That's what the neck is. It's the part of the body that yeah, brings the higher world of potentiality of thought into the lower world of expression of the body. And that's what, commu- that's what speech is. Speech which begins in the neck. Why is, why, excuse me, why is your voice formed in your neck? Why do you have a, an organ that produces voice in your neck? So most Westerners think because... Um, after bumping into each other in the jungle for a few million years, you know, that's where it ended up. <laughs> that's not Jewish thinking. <laughs> Jewish thinking is mipsori from my flesh I see the spiritual death. It's for a reason. The reason you have a neck is because there has to be a junction between the infinite unexpressed world of thought and the bodily world of expression. The Hebrew word dibur, you have to know this, the Hebrew word dibur, which means speech, doesn't literally mean speech. The Hebrew word dabar, that root in Hebrew, means translation of potential energy into actual manifestation. Like it says, yad ber amim tachtenu. Right? Yad ber, it's got nothing to do with speaking. It means one energy controlling another, bringing into expression. Right? In Aramaic, dabar means to take and place. Dabarinu, he, take, he took and placed them. Dabar echad lador means a leader of a generation. Dabar, that's what it is, dibur. It's the translation. Of course, the mouth does that best. The voice and mouth. Because you're taking an idea, an abstraction, and expressing it into its most subtle, least physical form in the world. So speech is the most beautiful expression of this. But that's why it's in the neck. And that's what speech is. And of course, it's the front of the neck. Which is... You know, the front of a, the front of a structure in the spiritual world is always its side of elevation, of spirituality, of Kedusha. And the back is always the side of contamination and... Loneliness, right? Like we say, Elohim Acherim, other gods, the Acherim is the same as Achoraim, the back of. That's why the front is the side of relationship and recognition, and the back is the side of darkness and excretion. Right? That's what it is. And that's why in Hebrew, 
this part of the body is called Moshe, the voice of the world. He brings the Torah to the world. The voice of Hashem speaks through his throat. He is this. And the back of the neck in Hebrew is called Ha'oref. The back, yeah, the negative side, the side of the back is called Ha'oref. And if you read that word backwards, it spells Paro. Pharaoh. Who is he? Moshe is the one who brings the voice into the world. And Pharaoh is the one who says, no, no such thing. Me Hashem. I don't know. Yeah, he's not here. So voice, it, words, you know, the Gemara says that when a child is in the womb, in its, when it's still close, when a child is still close to its dimension of formation, <coughs> while it's still close to its beginning, it knows everything. The child has a, lit, a light lit above his head, and he sees the whole world with that, and he learns the whole Torah. As he's born, he gets a blow on the mouth. Ba Malach, an angel comes with Satra al-Piv, he gets a blow on his mouth, and Meshachra, he forgets the whole Torah. And he's born a simple child, doesn't know anything. The Maral says an amazing thing. What is the blow on the mouth? You know, if you wish to make someone forget something, you give them a blow on the head. You don't blow on the mouth. What does that mean? Says the Maral, the blow on the mouth is the gift of speech. When a child enters the zone where he becomes capable of speaking, then he doesn't know anymore. You can't have both. You cannot have both. If you know it, you cannot say it. If you can express it, you don't have it anymore. If you can express it, all you have is how much can be... You can have that very clearly. It's a very good exercise to express, because then, then you really know if you understood. But all you understood is what you say. What comes behind that, the infinite dimension, the reality of the thing, you can't say. If you have that, you can't express it. The Balai Musa say that if you understand something deep in Torah, don't say it. Because as soon as you condense it into words, you lose it. Asim Chazisa, one of the great, great Muslim masters, he once waited 25 years before sharing an amazing idea with his students, because huh? he wasn't convinced that it had bonded with himself yet. Now, while there's still excitement with the idea, if you say it, you lose it. So he couldn't afford that. He waited to... Most people, most the normal mode, the immature modis, as you say it, you have to spit it out. As soon, before you've even heard it, you spit it out. There's an urgent need, especially if it's beautiful and deep. Then there's a desperate need to share. You spit it out. It makes no contact with you. It's not the way. The way is to develop silence. You have to filter, percolate in before you can risk. And even then you should only say the tip of the thing. What's a real relationship? It's not a real relationship. You know what a real relationship is? You get to know somebody and the more you get to know them, the more you begin to realize that you didn't know at all what the depth is there. That's, a, that's somebody worth knowing. So you get to know. The more deeply you know them, the more depth you see. Depth of character, of kindliness, of understanding, of sensitivity. Most people you meet, they'll sit you down in the first 20 minutes, they'll tell you everything there is to know about them. And that's all there is. 20 minutes, that's it. That's it. <laughs> the genuine dimension of the human being is that which cannot be expressed. Only the little bit that is expressed just gives you a hint of what is there, which is the nature of the world and the nature of the Torah. There are many applications of this idea. I mean, the, there's a well-known idea also that yeah, 
You know, it's a remarkable thing. If you ever you speak to people who went through the destruction in Europe 55, 60 years ago, so many of those people never spoke about it ever. Now that you speak to the families of such people, they'll tell you, my mother never mentioned it ever. My grandmother, we could never get it out of her. Not a word, ever. Very, very common thing. Many people think that the reason that they could not speak about those horrific experiences were because it is too painful. They want to open that area. Too, pain, too much scar, too much... M- That's not the reason. That is not the reason. That's not the reason. The reason that those people never spoke about it was because you could not say those things. There aren't words for that. The enormity of that, the inexplicable enormity, the, br- the completely senseless, enormous brutality... There are no words for that. They, they, they never spoke about it because there was nowhere to begin. Not because they didn't want it, it was too painful. That may be true as well. And the converse of this, of course, the converse of this in therapy, is if somebody has a pain that is larger than them, the therapy is, speak. Because if they bear a pain that is larger than them, and then they can suddenly, and that you, when it pours out, it pours out. But once it's happened and it takes an hour or a week, then the pain becomes a week of talking. It's fine, it's big, but it's it's there. And it's off the heart. The pain's not off the heart, but the impossible enormity is off. The fact that it's bigger than expression in the world. That's the words. The words can't say it, but the voice can. The voice can. The voice and sensitive people then listen to the words, they listen to the voice. Because you know the uh, the way this is put in the sources that talk about it is that what comes before the world is the Aleph. We said that, right? Aleph. In the in the sources that talk this way, they said Aleph is the Nishama. Aleph is the spiritual letter, that's why it's silent. And that's why it means one and it's Hashem's number and so forth. What are the next three letters in Hebrew? Bet Gimel Dalit. That spells Beget. Beget means a garment. The next three letters in sequence spell a garment. The, 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 the notion in the sources that talk this way is that there's always an invisible spiritual core, and then what covers that is the garment. And a garment is called a Levush, or a Beget. A garment has two characteristics. It hides what's inside, and it reveals what's inside. The king wears royal garments. You can't see the king, but you see the king. That's why it says that the world is Hashem's garment. It says, Ete or Kasalma. He, he robes himself in light like a garment. So you can't see him because you only see nature. But watch nature carefully. You see whose muscles ripple under the skin of that, that cover. And that's why the word beggar in Hebrew, the word beggar means two things. It means a garment and it means treachery. The Hebrew word beggar means a garment and a boged is a traitor. Same word in Hebrew. Why? Because the levush, the garment, yeah, now covers. So now the question is: Is the garment the same as what's is what's being reflected outside the same as what's inside, is the problem? The voice is the thing itself, but the words is debatable, question, questionable, and therefore you need to listen to the voice too, not the words. You know, when the Torah deals with prophecy, it talks about voice, not words. Now then, when Sarah had an insight, prophetic insight into the nature of her child. And her great husband, Abraham, Abraham, did not have her insight. And Hashem wanted to inform him <coughs> that his wife was right. So the expression the Torah uses is, Shema Be'kei La, listen to her voice. 
It doesn't say listen to her words. The natural thing is to say listen to her words. Somebody's telling you words of wisdom. Accurate, right, correct. Listen to the words. It doesn't say that. Listen to her voice. And then he, he heard that there's a prophetic depth. When Hashem says to the prophet to go and cry out against the people of Yerushalayim, he says, Cry out in your throat. Do not hold back. Not your mouth. In the words they want here. No amount of words can say what the scream of a child in the night can convey. There's no doubt about that. Words are always doubtful. Always. Are they carrying the meaning that you know, these garments... But that, that's not mistakeable. If you hear a scream like that, there's no, there's no, there's no duplicity. There's no... That's what the shofar is. The shofar is the scream of the child in the Jewish people. The, 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 it's that sound that wells up from the purity. That, and that's why the law of the blowing of the shofar is it must sound like a wail. The Talmudic discussion of the laws of shofar are only which type of cry it has to be. A long wail or a broken sob. What's being said here? It's not just the sob of a neshama that, that, that squeezes itself in shiva. But it's the sound... You know what the word shiva means? To return. To shiva, repentance. In English it means repentance. But in Hebrew it means to go back. The shofar is going back. That's what it is. You can't do that with words. You messed up the words. Even if you try. You know how badly you used words? You spend the whole year using words that are unclean, that are, that are inaccurate, that are devious, that are unnecessary at best. Now you want to turn around and speak. You just sullied and soiled the tool. But a cry will do it. And the shofar, therefore, the shofar is going back to the root of what expression is. Now we don't want articulate words. Those are hopeless. You know, the word shofar in Hebrew means a few things. Amazing thing. The word shofar means a shofar. It also means to, to build and correct. You know that? Le shaper in Hebrew... The Shaper means to, to correct and to beautify. Shapire Jerusalem, the Talmud says, the beautiful people of Jerusalem. Shapir in Hebrew means correct or beautiful. Le Shaper means to beautify and to correct and to elevate. Shipru Ma'asechem, when you hear the shofar, you're supposed to think of the word correction. But many people don't know, the word shofar has another meaning in Hebrew. You know, always in Hebrew, as we've said many times, when a word has more than one meaning, they all must be the same thing. The word shofar in Hebrew has another meaning. The word shfir in Hebrew, you know what that means? You know what shfir means in Hebrew? This membranes that surround the child when it's conceived. <coughs> That's where the shofar takes you back. May shafir in Hebrew is the amniotic fluid. Right? <coughs> King David talks about his hands being involved with shfir v'shilya. Shfir v'shilya. The membranes and the placenta. May shafir, that's what it is. You, why is it water? Why is the child born in, in, a, <coughs> in water? Because <laughs> the world is formed from water. The world is formed from water. The solid world arises out of the water dimension. But the waters were split to form the world. What's the mikveh? You got a mikveh, Rosh Hashanah. You got, mikveh is a dissolution back into primal form. That's what the mikveh is. The mikveh has to be waters of origin. That has to be not ducted through ducts. It has to be pure. It has to be rainwater. It has to be... <coughs> People think that purity in a mikveh, where you reformed, is when you duck under the water. It's not correct. 
There's sources that talk about it and say that the purity of a mikveh is when you come out of the water. When you go under the water in a mikveh, you dissolve your form. You go back into, go back into that primal water. When you come out of the waters that come on, that should be the intention for a new. Yes? That's why the world began as waters in the description of creation. And that's why the Jewish people came through the sea. Why did Jewish people come through the sea that split? Because the birth of the Jewish people was again from an ocean where dry land was manifest. The shepherd takes you back to that, to that water. I mean, it goes on and on. I'm going to just share with you one more, just to show you how far it goes. You know, when, just, just, the sweetness of these things, almost inexpressible. You know, when the Jewish people were in Egypt, listen well, when the Jewish people were in Egypt, you know what the Torah's description of that is? And the sages' description? The Jewish people being formed in the crucible of the fire, the torture of Egypt, is described in our sources as the incubation, as the, the pregnancy, the Jewish people were born, in fact, in fact, it is even expression that Hashem took us out of Egypt with an outstretched hand. The Mephoshim say, like a shepherd puts his hand into the animal and gives birth. Yes, he performs the midwife action, he brings the child, that's how Hashem himself appeared into the contamination of Egypt, into the animal as it were, and he delivered the Jewish people. So what's happening, the Jewish people are being born, they're in Egypt, and they're giving birth to children. And Pharaoh is trying to kill them. L- listen to the scene. Here the Jewish people are being born, in suffering and in torture and in slavery. And they're giving birth to children. And Pharaoh's killing them. And who's he killing the males? W- what does maleness mean? The connection to source. Pharaoh is this. I don't know who he is. He doesn't exist. He, uh, not in my world. Not in my dictionary. And if we're stamping out any connection to source, and he's killing male Jewish children. And who gives them life? What's the name of the midwife who gives them life? Shifra. Shofar. Her name is Shifra. Yocheved's name. Yocheved and Miriam, right? Mother and daughter, who brought the Jewish children to life. Who was her name? We'll have to discuss another time. Fits in exactly here. But let's leave that for now. Shifra. What was her name? The feminine of Shofar. Why? Because what's she doing? He's doing this and killing them, and she's giving them life on pain of death. That's what a woman is. How does she give them life? She blows into their nostrils and she brings the rest she revives the children just like the human being was originally created. What other name could she have? And that's what it is. When you hear the show from Rosh Hashanah it's not, it's not just a mitzvah. <laughs> there would be enough. When you hear the show from Rosh Hashanah what should you think of? Giving of the Torah. That birth of the Jewish people. You're supposed to think of Tchia Samesim. The resurrection of the dead, which will be to the sound of the shofar. You look in your Matzor, you'll see Rav Sadiagon there. He gives ten, ten manifestations of shofar. You know, there are ten times in history that the shofar is blown. The sound of the shofar accompanies ten events in history. One we haven't heard yet. The messianic birth. Right? The messianic advent and the resurrection. And all of those sounds are birth sounds. Where something new comes into the world. The giving of the Torah, coronation of a king, is two trumpets, the terror of war, the sirens, a shock back to reality. Not an easy thing if you ever lived in a country where air raid sirens are, are, mean, are real. Not simple. 
And when the graves open, and incidentally, the Hebrew word for a grave and a womb are the same. You know that? The kever in Hebrew, which means a grave, the, the sages used that word for the womb. That's why the word kever in Hebrew means a grave. You rearrange the letters, it spells rakev, which means to disintegrate. And rearrange the letters again, it spells karov, which means to bring close, you know, korban. Also means boker, which is the morning, where the, where the new day begins. Boker, the morning, right? <coughs> and the womb in Hebrew, the other word for it is rechem, which spells machar, which is where the morrow is. Also ramach. And also Chomer. <laughs> and also Rachamim. The womb is 248. There are 248 limbs in the body that are formed in the womb. And Abraham, the, the name Abraham, is 248. It is the inception or conception of the Jewish people. But that's what Shefer is. So that is Yechronus. We're trying to go back in time to remember that sound. In fact, the, the Ghazals say that when the child is born, he takes an oath. You know that? As the child's about to be born, he makes an oath. They swear you an oath. You are sworn an oath as you're about to be born. And the oath is, tzadik for You have to be a tzadik and not a rasha. You make an oath. You're put into the world to be righteous, to be good. And they force an oath on you. And the test of the rest of your life is whether you live up to that, what you swore. What is tshuva? Again, there's a lot to talk about. What is tshuva? Tshuva is repentance. Yeah, but it means return. The word tashuv in Hebrew is the same letters as Shabbat. Tashuva and Shabbat. Because what is tshuva? It's going back to your point of origin before there was any damage in your own development. And what is Shabbos? Shabbos is where you go back to celebrate the moment of creation. So if Shabbat what was original in thought, Shabbat comes before the week and the end of the week. That's what Shabbos is. And Shuvah means going back to the purity. And that's why this time of year is the time for Shuvah. It's the creation of the human being, and therefore you can recreate the human being. That's exactly what it is. Why don't we do Shuvah on Rosh Hashanah? On Rosh Hashanah itself we don't do Shuvah. Forty days we work on Shuvah, right? The whole month of Elul, and the ten days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, to climax on Yom Kippur, the whole day of, of critical self-examination and rend- rending self-analysis and correction. But Rosh Hashanah, not a word. Not a word. Dari says, I mean, very extreme negativity, that extreme expression of how important it is not to say Vidui. Vidui is confession. We say it in Slichas, we confess. On Yom Kippur, we spend the whole day doing this confession. Rosh Hashanah, when you're being judged, can you imagine, your life's in the balance. Now is the time of judgment. Not a word. Not a word. If there's one moment in the year when you should be saying vidui with real meaning, real confession, not a word. What do you speak about in Rosh Hashanah? Only about him. Only, only Hashem. Only. Zechreinus, you go back to the male origin of the world, as it were, before the world begins. Shofar takes you back there. Malchi used to talk about the king. Only about the king of the world. What happens to, what about you and your survival? The truth is, that's your only chance for survival. The only chance for survival is to go back to the point where survival is guaranteed. That's, for example, why you don't single yourself out in Rosh Hashanah. You become part of the Jewish people. Very important. 
Very important. When Elisha approached the woman and he said to her, what can I do for you? You know the Ghazal? She was a childless woman. And she helped him tremendously. So he had Gehazi call her in. And she came to stand before him. He said to her, what can we do for you? Can I speak to the king for you or the minister of defense? Or what can I do? A very, very important man. He was the prophet of his generation. In one way greater than, 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 than Eliyahu, Elijah. He said to her, what can I do for you? Here was her chance. Here was her chance. And the Ghazal said it was Rosh Hashanah that day. Because it says Hayom. And we have an axiom, we have a principle in Torah. Whenever it says Hayom, it means the day. Rosh Hashanah is the day. So she appeared before him. Childless woman, heartbroken woman. And he said to her, what can I do for you? And when he said, can I speak to the king? He didn't mean the king. He meant the king. And he was capable of doing it. And later he gave her a brach and she had a child. And she knew he could do that. She said, ami ani I sit among my people. That's all. Here was her one chance in life. Rosh Hashanah, that's not when you, you, know, you express your own needs. No, Rosh Hashanah. The depth of it is that that's the ultimate return. Of course that's Chiva. Chiva means, Chiva means that in the heart you've gone back to where you should be. Where should you be? One with Him. That's where you should be. The one day of the year. You speak about you, you missed it. You start speaking about you. You're way beyond the source. You're a long way from the source. You, as, a, as, a, as an individual. First there's Him, then there's the Jewish people, then there's you at the end of history. Chiva you can do in your heart. Chiva in your heart. Mirchas Kinuch asks the question, why? Why? You want to correct yourself on Rosh Hashanah when you're being judged. So where's the vidui? Where's the confession? And he shows that you can do Chiva without confession. You can be a new person, be a tzaddik. You can be a tzaddik without confession. What vidui does, what confession does, fulfills the mitzvah of Chiva, wipes out the damage of sins. But to, in essence, become new, Thought is good enough for that. What is thought? The point of your origin, origin of consciousness. You change there, you become new. That's the idea. And all the mitzvahs and all the consciousness, all the tefillahs, all the work of Rosh Hashanah is nothing other than going back to that point of origin. The real point of origin, back before the point of origin. If you, if you can say such a thing. Let's just add a word of practicality. Can we do that? Yes, a few minutes. Let's just look at the... Let's try and understand this. One, one, it, this is an idea. What should you think? What should you do or decide? What should you work on? People say, Rosh Hashanah, what should I work on? What should I take on? It's a new, re- new year resolution. You know where they got that from? New year resolutions that no one ever keeps. <laughs> That's right, correct, that's right. So what should it be? What should you take on? What should you take on in Rosh Hashanah? Let's think about it. Which mitzvah? What should you take on? Rosh Hashanah maybe, learning more, all go to the root, all the mitzvahs. What should you take on? So the Ramam says an amazing thing. I won't go into all the details now, but the Ramam says that the, when you stand on Rosh Hashanah, you're poised on a knife edge. He should say you should see yourself as poised on a knife edge of 50% mitzvahs and 50% averis. 50% mitzvahs and 50%, 50% positive actions, but it doesn't only mean none, it means weight. You should regard yourself as on the knife edge, that half your actions have been negative, half positive, and one positive action will tilt the balance. In addition, your city, 
is regarded as being 50-50, the country you live in, and all humanity also 50-50, and it all depends on you. And if you do one mitzvah that day, you do one, you, you, you shift the balance, you get one credit, as it were, the whole thing cascades into positivity and you save the world. That's what he says. And then he says that almost all human beings, virtually all human beings, are exactly 50-50. Now that begs any understanding. What are the statistical probabilities that anybody will be exactly 50-50? What does he mean? What does he mean most people are exactly half-half? Half positive, half mitzvahs, and half avarious. First of all, is this sort of a, a number game? You know, like who dies with the most points? You know, mitzvahs, that's what it means? 50... Secondly, the Rambam says that if you have 51% mitzvahs, you call it tzaddik gamut. Tzaddik, righteous individual. 51%? That means you've got 49% black. And you call it tzaddik, righteous? And conversely, if you have 49% mitzvahs, that's 51% negativity, you call the Rosh gamut. Die immediately. Sealed in the book of death. Why? And, and, and how does it go according to majorities? You have to pay for everything. There are plenty of places in Torah that indicate that the slightest sin has to be paid for. And the most infinitesimal mitzvah gets infinite reward. So what does it mean? It goes 51%, that's it, finished. 51 this side, eternal. What's going on? You, you hear the problem? But the answer is amazing, and it is so important. It's so important. The most important message there is. The Mishnah says that a person is like a tree. Means a person is like a tree. And one of, the, one of the images, one of the metaphors that's used, is that a tree can look... You know, one of the ways a tree can be is that it can be planted in very good place, where the soil is very good, and it nourishes and nurtures itself from the good soil. But it may have some branches hanging over into bad space, over bad soil. Or the tree may be planted in a good, in a bad place, and it's some branches hanging to a good place. What, what does this mean? There's many means. But one is this. You know, there's an old problem, perhaps one of the oldest and deepest problems. Why do the righteous often suffer? Undeserving people often suffer in case you hadn't noticed. And some very, very undeserving, very undeserving and negative people have a wonderful time, in case you hadn't noticed. And we often ask why. It's a deep question. One of the dimensions of answer to that question is because when a person has his tree planted in a good place, means he's a righteous individual, he's got some areas of conscience, some things he hasn't done perfectly. The suffering that he's been given is a pruning off of those branches. Because the next world is clarity. The next world, you can't have two... There's no mixed picture in the next world. The next world is crystal clear reality that's only one kind. And therefore, this righteous individual may suffer terribly in this world to prune off all those branches that hang over into the bad place. The result is clarified in a good place. There may be a very bad person who has a few mitzvahs. He may have done... A, you know, he may, the worst of individuals has done some good things. They deserve payment. He has the most wonderful life in this world. Wonderful ecstasy in this world. Why? It's to be paid out for his mitzvahs. But what's happening is a tragedy. Because he's having his branches pruned off so that there's only badness left. And when the situation clarifies itself in a domain where there's no confusion, he does not exist. I mean, one of the questions they ask about this is, that's not fair. That's not fair. Why? Because a righteous person suffering in this world is fair. Why? Because the sufferings are temporary. And no matter how long you live and how badly you suffer, it's a temporary world. Your life goes by. So you, you suffer through those years. Long years. But the reward is an eternity. 
But the converse doesn't appear to be true. The converse is a person who is ba- is bad. Where is his goodness paid out? In a finite world? His infinite worth of mitzvahs? Do you know what a mitzvah is worth? Mitzvahs mean that you become one with Hashem. The Hebrew word mitzvah means to be together. Like tzevet and betzavta chada. So mitzvah is worth infinity. The principle is schar mitzvah the high on the lake. There is no reward for a mitzvah in this world. You know why mitzvahs are not rewarded in this world normally? Because there is not enough currency in this world to pay for them. The smallest penny that you gave to the correct place which formed a mitzvah, the reward's not a penny, the, reward, the reward's infinite. The, the sources, our sources say that the reason you get no reward for a mitzvah in this world is because, you know what it's like a mitzvah? Having a mitzvah in your hand is like a million pound check. And you're traveling through a little town where the whole town consists of one little shack. And that shack is the general store and it's the post office and it's the bank and it's everything. And you're traveling through this town, you have a million pound check and you're thirsty. So you stop in for a drink and you ask the man to change your million pound check. So after they resuscitate him, <laughs> he tells you he's never seen that much money in his life. And you remain thirsty. Because your money is worthless. But when you get back to the big city that you're traveling to, you walk into any bank, I'll cash it for you. This world is the smallest of little huts. Where the mitzvah that you hold in your hand, they couldn't begin to think of cashing. And that's why you get paid in a world where they can not here. So here's this individual who's done a few mitzvahs, this black individual. But he's done a few mitzvahs. Mitzvahs are infinite. And what does he get? What does he get? A few years of pleasure. Yachts on the Caribbean and a few other nothings. That's unfair. And the answer is, you only get what you generate. Hashem would love to give him infinite value for his mitzvahs. Hashem would love to pay him out for his mitzvahs in the world of infinity. But he's not there. He sold that. Being negative, being a black negative individual means one who's invested in the finite and physicality. So he's sold that he's not there. Never all he can get is this world. It's not, it's not that it's not fair, it's tragedy. But this is the basic idea. Now, so when the Rambam says like this, your tree can be here and you have branches there. Your tree can be there and branches here. And there's an accounting and a, branch and a pruning and a... When the Rambam says that most people, listen, listen well, when he tells you that most people are 50-50, the Rambam does not mean that most people on earth have exactly 50.00% mitzvahs, and just so happens that they have 50.00% of errors. That's not what he means. He means most people's tree is planted on the neutral line on which they were born, and they've never moved their tree. That's what he means. They've never made a policy decision about what they're here for. They've never decided, I'm a tzaddik or my rasha. Yeah? How many people on earth have decided they're a Russia? I'm here for evil. Very, very uncomfortable. Most of those people who really are will tell you it's mitzvahs. It's mitzvahs? What do you mean? I haven't paid for this. There are a whole world of rationalizations. Almost nobody, normal, makes a policy decision to move himself and to be a Russia. But you know what? Almost nobody makes a decision to be a tzaddik. Most people on earth, probably 99.9999 people on earth, are born in the null position, like everyone is, and they never move it. Mitzvahs come their way, they're available. Do a good deed, why not? Sharp opportunities come their way, take a chance. Available if they can. And they accumulate mitzvahs and avaris, but the tree stays planted firmly where it was originally. And no... Rosh Hashanah is the time for moving your tree. That's what he means. He doesn't mean one more mitzvah. You know, one more twig. 
There's no time for that in Rosh Hashanah. There's no time on that day to start figuring out all the branches. They've got time for that. Rosh Hashanah is for one thing, is where the root is planted. That's what it means. It's a policy decision. You're a tzaddik or you're a rosh That's all that's needed. There's no time on Rosh Hashanah to start accumulating mitzvahs. It's too late for that. But that's not what you're doing on Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is where's your tree planted. That's all. You made an oath before you were born. You're going to be a tzaddik. You have to fulfill that. Do you make a decision? There's one day a year you're supposed to have a board meeting in here. And you're supposed to assess where you got to and did you get to where you were supposed to and where you're going. They do it in business. They do it in sport. They do it every place on earth except where it really counts. Like your marriage. Or, or, or who you are. There you just sort of, uh, sort of cope. You, know, you sort of keep going. When it comes to business activity, there's no business on earth where they don't sit down from time, probably much more than once a year. And have a very, very careful meeting about where they've been and where they're going. Don't they? <coughs> there's no serious sportsman that doesn't assess his progress and set goals. There's no serious Torah learner who doesn't assess where he's holding and set a goal where his learning wants to be. But who you are as a mensch? So tomorrow won't be worse than yesterday, that's all. There's a most people work, wake up hoping that if tomorrow is not worse than yesterday was, then we're doing well. That's all. You're coping, that's all. You're more or less coping, you know, doing well. But you're not here for that. You're not here for that. You're not born to cope. So where, where it accounts, there needs to be a board. There needs to be a... That's Rosh Hashanah. You should do it every day. Some people do it every day. They're going to sleep at night before making an accounting where they were yesterday, this time, and where they are now. And they set a goal for tomorrow. Once a week, Shabbos maybe, Arab Shabbos, but Rosh Hashanah, once a year. Rosh Hashanah is the day for going back to the root of who you are. It's the day for going back to when you were in those waters, when that oath was made, when that light was lit, and you saw infinity, where the only sound, if there was one, was the sound of Shofar, whether it was the swish of the Shfir water, or the sound of the Shofar, whichever one it was. But that's when you, that's where you were then. That was the moment of conception where the child was being formed. You were in the waters of formation of the world. An oath was made then, right? There was a goal. There was... So somewhere in your life, sooner or later, someplace, before it's too late. That's Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is going back into that dimension. And it's not messing around with details and trying to add one here and take away one. It's all good, of course. But that's not the, that's not the work. That's not the day. It's not the time. And that's what it means. It means going back and examining, <coughs> living in that route. It could be that we don't blow the shofar this year because Rosh Hashanah turns out to be Shabbos. And it could be that Shabbos does it for you. Shabbos is a return. Could be. I'm not sure. Check it out. Not sure. But Shabbos is... The day itself takes you back there. That's what Shabbat's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a day of taking you back. So the sound, as it were, that inheres in the day. We don't call it... What do we call it? Yom Zichron Trua. All we do is remember the shofar. We use Zikaron to get there. That's what it is. So in summary... What we've learned is that the consciousness of Rosh Hashanah, the awareness of that day, that's an awareness, should be an awareness of great purity. That's a return to absolute cleanliness, the cleanness that you began with. That's the moment of creation, the moment of formation. It's before the destiny began to be, to be played out, before the clock started ticking. And because it's a return to that state, it's a return to that energy. And you can go back into that state and you can reform a year. And the year can be entirely different, completely different. <coughs> completely different. You may wake up the next morning, the world looks more or less the same, but it's different writing in the book. 
your name, you know, your name's in a book now. You don't show that book. They don't show you that book. But your name's been written. And you're either alive or not. And therefore, that is the, that is the work. The work is the work of choosing life, of going back into that point of origin and generating a rebirth. Thank <laughs> you.